Hello and welcome to another Tabletop Games blog review video. Today we're looking at Stonemaier Games um, Scythe, which was released back in 2016, which I know is a long time ago, but I still want to look at it. The game is a 1-5 to five player game, lasting anything between 90 minutes and 150 minutes. We even played for three hours before, so it depends on how much you've played it and how much how well you know it, it can get much quicker, and obviously player count as well. It's a relatively heavy game, a 3.5 out of 5 complexity rating, ages 14 or higher. It's, as I say, been out since 2016, but I still wanted to review it now, because I'm surprised how many people actually don't know about it. I keep you know, talking to people and, and they haven't have heard about it, but they always think it's a different type of game. Um, so let's start. It's basically a game set in an alternate version of Europe in the 1920s. These countries, these factions have just had a big war. They're all um, very weak and starting to build up their economies again. It has been illustrated by Jakub Rosalski. Um, the artwork is absolutely stunning. I just look at it. I mean, look at the board, for example. It's beautiful. All these objective cards, they're just gorgeous. You also have the encounter cards with different illustrations. I think every, every literally every encounter card has a different illustration. Um, then they've got combat cards with beautiful illustrations as well. The player boards, the faction boards, I mean it's just absolutely stunning artwork. And it certainly draws you into this world where you find mechs alongside cavalry and farmers on the fields. And then, as I said, these countries that are just recovering from this great war that they had. Scythe certainly looks like a war game, but it definitely isn't. It's more of a mix of area control, resource management and action selection. So there is fighting in this game, or well, there can be, but most of the time it is about you trying to show that you're strong and threaten a battle but actually you don't really want to battle because most battles leave both opponents uh, much weaker and the rewards you get from battles are usually not very big so chances are you just posture and try and show how strong you are so people won't attack you and you might move closer to someone to threaten an attack but it's unlikely that you will actually attack saying that of course if there is a moment where someone lapsed and, and there is a weak spot somewhere, people will take advantage of that and, and do attack. So it does happen. But in most games, I would say battles happen maybe two, maybe three times. Um, it can happen more often, but I have played games where there has been no battle whatsoever. So it, it really depends on, on the game setup and, and who you're playing with. It's an asymmetric game. So each faction has a different base power. So, for example, the Nordics here have the ability to move around the field with their workers quite easily. Um, and then you have additional abilities that you unlock as you deploy your mechs. So, here's four mechs that aren't on the board to start with, each with different powers. And as you deploy them, they reveal abilities that you can take advantage of. Now, these abilities are um, different for all the factions, but there are overlaps. So, for example, the speed ability um, tends to be the same on all factions except maybe the um, new ones, the invaders from afar. Um, everyone will have a river walk in except the invaders from afar, but your river walk will be different to other people, so what hexes you can cross from and to will be different. 
And then each faction tends to have a couple of individual abilities that are literally unique to them. So between that you do get quite a lot of variety. I like playing the Nordic faction, that's why I've set them up here. But uh, there will be different factions that might suit your player style more. And given the asymmetry, people have said that some factions are just more powerful. And there is some of that, there is some truth in that. But at the same time, if these factions are in play, you just need to be aware of that and try and keep them down uh, while you can so that they don't can't just run away with it. Um, so I think it is very much balanced, this game, definitely. Um, the more you play it, you realize uh, the, how different these factions actually are. And a faction like the Rusevids, that a lot of people say is very powerful, is actually not as powerful once you've played the game a few times. It's easier to play to start with, definitely, but it's not necessarily the strongest faction. To add to the uh, variability of the game, the action selection boards, the player boards here, are all different as well. Uh, so, as you play the game, you either decide which faction you want and then choose a random board, or you just do them out randomly, but it does create combinations that make the game very interesting for from game to game. These action selection boards are actually, again, very interesting in creating a, an interesting mechanism, because each action slot has two parts to it, a top and a bottom row action, so there's four action slots on each board. You can decide whether you want to do the top or the bottom action, or both, uh, provided you can pay the resources. And ideally, to be very efficient, you obviously want to do top and bottom during your turn. So you can, you know, get most out of it. However, at the beginning of the game, chances are you will only do the top action, because that's the one you usually can carry out without having to pay anything or only very little. Being able to do the bottom row action, though, is a lot harder. So you do have to get resources to carry those out. And um, getting those resources, you need to select certain actions to produce resources. Um, and there is a certain synergy starting to happen. So he's trying to build your en engine out of, around this playable, these actions that you can do in the combination between the top and bottom row actions. And that sometimes creates a bit of a pull and push as well. So there may be a really good top row action you want to carry out and a really good bottom row action, but it's in a different action slot. So you have to then decide, do you just carry out the top row action this time around, and not worry about the bottom row action for that go, and then in your next turn, maybe not do the top row action or take it, but you're more focused on the bottom row action. It's quite often the case that they don't necessarily line up, and you have to work quite hard to get this engine going. But at the same time, that makes you feel really good when you do get that synergy suddenly going between top and bottom reactions, and you can do both. And suddenly, you know, two or three turns, you do top and bottom, and it creates, you know, a really good feeling. It's really amazing when you can do those things. Moving on to the area control part of the game, um, you have to bear in mind that area control plays very little role, really, for most of the game. Yes, you want to control certain areas so you can produce resources, and maybe move into spaces where you can create, get some encounters, so these encounter tokens allow you to do an encounter, which might give you benefits. But most of the time, you're actually going to keep your workers and your mechs and everything quite close together because it allows you to move around more quickly and easily and produce more resources on your go. It's only really towards the end of the game that you start spreading out. But gauging when the end is, is really hard. There's no set number of turns. The game basically ends when someone plays their last star. So there's six stars and you can place them up here depending on what uh, things you have completed. 
So looking at some other players, you might see they only have one star left, so you could think that the end of the game is probably due in the next round or two. Yet that player who is ready to finish the game might not be able to because they can work out that they're not actually in the lead point-wise. So being able to place the last star doesn't mean you're automatically winning. So that player might decide to you know, draw out the game for a couple more rounds. Well, then that gives an opportunity to another player to finish the game on their go. So it is really hard to gauge when that happens. If you see people start to spread out, chances are they're probably ready to, or they've spotted something that someone else is ready to finish the game. So you need to try and start spreading out as well, because area control, or the number of places, the hexes you control at the end of the game, does give you a fair number of points, to indicate on the score track here. Um, so, Yes, again, there's this tension of, okay, I want to keep my units all together to be quite efficient during the game, but then I need to be ready and start spreading out um, so I have lots of hexes under my control at the end of the game. This sudden ending of the game, i.e. when someone places the last star, the game immediately ends and no one else gets another turn, has been criticized quite a bit by a lot of people. Personally, I like it. It's different to any game. You normally used to finish the rounds so every player has the same number of turns during the game, which you know is fair enough, but I think it's quite boring. I think it's quite interesting here to get to a point where you think, okay, I need one more turn, I'm gonna produce some resources and you know maybe place another mech or something, whatever gives you the points or increase your popularity, and then I'm gonna win. And then suddenly you don't get that other turn because someone else finishes the game before you and that is very frustrating, I get that, and that's probably why people criticize this. But it's this frustration, I think, that for me creates this love-hate relationship of this game. Yes, I'm frustrated at the end of the game when I, I don't get my next turn that I wanted to have to really boost my points. But at the same time, I get over that very quickly, so the next day I then go, all right, I want to play it again because I want to be better this next time. I want to improve my strategy. I want to show I can this time finish the game early and uh, really make points. Also, people I think are frustrated because of the point difference between first, second and other players. So whereas in most games you might have two or three or four points difference between the different players, which feels tight. In this, in size, you can actually have a difference of, you know, 15 points, maybe even 20, um, between first and second player. And that obviously feels odd that you're so far behind, when in reality, you are just one turn behind, that's all you are behind. It's just the points are spread much further. So as I say, I don't, I can see the criticism, I can understand that, but I do really actually like it, that Scythe does finish so abruptly. The components in the game are all very high quality. So it's a relatively expensive game, but you can see you get quite a lot for it. So in the base game, you get 25 minis that are really detailed and uh, people have started painting, so if you Google for that you can see how people have painted them and, and how good they look. Uh, in the Invaders from Afar expansion you get another 10 minis. Um, again, as I say, you can paint those. And then on top of that you get lots of wooden tokens that are unique. So um, these worker tokens are different for every faction. Um, and they are beautiful, as I say, so they're sort of thematic the Nordic and the Kremian and all that, they all have different uh, wooden worker tokens. You then obviously have your stars and hearts and your combat tokens, different building tokens as well, they're all wooden building tokens, they're all different. Um, 
plus some of the standard cubes, uh, pig and the round tokens. But you get a lot for your money, so it's definitely worth it. Speaking of the basic things, the money is just cardboard tokens, which you know is fine, but personally I would recommend you upgrade to some metal tokens. I think they do create a huge difference in the feel and are worth the money. Again, quite expensive, but I do think it's worth upgrading those. It just feels nicer playing with the metal money. And the cardstock is, you know, fine, they're good cards. We've played this game so many times now and they're still really good looking. No sort of dog ears and edges fraying, not too much anyway. So definitely good quality components. So you can play this game solo. And what you do for that is basically you have a stack of cards and when there's the robot players go, you play one of those cards and it sort of explains what you need to do. Um, the decisions of the Atoma aren't just one action based on the card drawn, but actually a set of actions and you sort of work your way through this choice of different things the Atoma player can do. So depending on, on what the game state is, they might actually attack you, or they might just move, or they might, might get a star, or whatever it is, it does you know, make the game more interesting. So the same card in a different situation can have a different effect, which I think is really good. And it's, it's really cleverly made. There's also different levels of this Otoma. So for solo play, that is ideal. But also we found adding the Otoma to a two-player game or a three-player game actually in our case is really useful. So you can see I set up a three-player game. You have these two factions close to each other, um, whereas the blue Nordic player up there is by themselves. and that means they can probably do a lot more um, at the beginning of the game because they're not so close to each other. So adding an Otoma might create another attack uh, or faction in this area closer to the Nordic player, or maybe on the Rosbeard side. Um, so in the three-player game, that's definitely worth it. And it also means you don't necessarily have two players eating up on one player because the Otoma might interfere with that. Similarly, in the four-player game, you might want to add that in, but I must say I feel a five-player game is a bit too much. So whether it's a four-player game with Automa or just five human players, I think it gets a bit too tight and too much. So to me, this probably sweet spot probably is three. I say if there's only two of you at the Automa and to create that three-player feeling, and if there's three of you, try the Automa player as well. I think it's definitely worth making this board a bit tighter in that setup. Other than that, I think that's it. As I say, I really love to hate this game or hate to love this game. It's one of those that I just want to play again and again, and it's been a very long time since we last played it. So I'm hoping we're going to get it to the table again soon. Um, and that's all, as I say. If you like this video, as always, please subscribe, like and comment below. Also check out my blog, where I have a written version of this review, as well as other articles, and of course my Twitter feed, Patreon and Coffee page for support. Other than that, thank you very much for watching, and I hope to see you again soon.